We're in Romans chapter 4. We're uh, making our way through this letter from the Apostle Paul. His uh, letter is an apostle to the church at Rome. And as we're seeing, the main point of the book of Romans is to lay out the gospel, to uh, explain it, to defend it. One of the ways in which Paul has been defending it lately in the verses we've been seeing is to show that it's not new. The, the same gospel that the apostles preached by the authority of Jesus is the same gospel by which uh, believers under the old covenant were saved as well. That is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Jesus Christ alone. The saints in the Old Testament, like Abraham and like David, that we saw last time in Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 12, they also had faith in Jesus, but he was a shadowy Jesus. Uh, Jesus said about Abraham that, he re that Abraham rejoiced to see his day. And so that gospel is um, the gospel of justification by faith alone. And um, last, last time in Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 12, we saw how um, uh, Paul showed that the patriarch Abraham, who's the father of the Jews, but the father of all those who believe, he was justified, he was declared or pronounced righteous by God on the basis of God's grace, but through faith, um, not on the basis of his works. And he derived that from Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6, where it says that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And that same justification on the basis of grace was enjoyed by David. And so Paul cited from Gen um, Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2, a psalm of David, uh, to show that. And now as we close out Romans chapter 4, um, Paul introduces a new word into the vocabulary of his argument. And that word is promise. And we're going to see that in verses 13 through 25. And the reason that he brings up promise is because uh, God's blessings to Abraham and his seed were promised from God. Um, God had pledged that he was going to bring about these blessings. And so this promise is not dependent on anybody other than God. So that's the next phase in Paul's argument to show that salvation is on the basis of grace, independent of what we do, apart from anything that, that we do. Salvation is the fulfillment of God's promise. Even God's promise to Abraham, it turns out, find its ultimate fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So that's the main point of what we're going to be looking at today. So, 
in Romans chapter 4, verses 13 through 25, the first thing that Paul speaks to us about is the promise realized through faith, not law. The promise realized through faith, not law. That's in verses 13 through 16. So notice verse 13. For the promise, and this is the first time the word promise is used in the book of Romans. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. So this specific promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world. That promise that Abraham and his seed would be heir of the world is not given to us literally word for word in the Old Testament. But if you gather together uh, God's promises to Abraham, that's what they amount to. That's the, the gist of God's promises to Abraham that he would be the heir of the world. Let me just give you some examples. Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 through 3, God said to Abraham, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Genesis chapter 17, verses 4 and 5 which we're going to come back to later on. But in that passage, God says, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. And in Genesis chapter 22, verses 17 and 18, that brother Nate read for us, God said to Abraham, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. So you tie all of these promises together, and they amount to God's promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world. And you'll notice that he says that this promise did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Paul has already spent a lot of ink demonstrating from the Old Testament that Abraham was justified through faith. And he appealed to Genesis 15 and verse 6. Um, and that's what it means, uh, the righteousness of faith. It's not that faith itself is righteous or the righteousness of God, but, but faith receives the righteousness of God as it's in Christ Jesus. And because of that, because of what, because of whom faith receives and embraces, then that's the significance of, this, of Paul's words, the righteousness of faith. 
But why does Paul say that this promise did, to Abraham did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith? Because that's what the Jews, by and large, in Paul's day and in and around Rome, that's what the Jews were saying. William Hendrickson, in his commentary, wrote this. As the Jews saw it, the promise made to Abraham was to be realized through obedience to the Mosaic law. The rabbis even maintained that long before the law was promulgated from Sinai, Abraham already had a thorough knowledge of it and obeyed it in all its details. That's what the Jews believed. Remember we saw last time that to the Jews, Abraham was a righteous man. He was an example of righteousness, a model of righteousness. Abraham, like other patriarchs in the Old Testament, actually didn't need to repent. Only sinners like us need to repent, not the patriarchs like, like Abraham. And so they believed that Abraham was righteous in and of himself based on his obedience to the law of Moses. That's why Paul says what he does in verse 13. That's why he's setting up his argument in that way. But then notice what he goes on to say in verse 14. Here is why that cannot be true. In other words, here is why it cannot be true that God's promise to Abraham was through the law and not through the righteousness of faith. For, verse 14, if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. Have you ever heard of that phrase? Null and void. That's a saying that we use in our culture. And I believe that it's just another example of how our, our culture has been permeated by the things of God, by Christianity. We, we speak of things that are null and void. There's an agreement. There's a contract and if something doesn't work out or something's broken in that agreement, agreement or contract, it's null and void. Well, here's the, here is the ultimate null and void. Paul says in verse 14 that God's promise must be dependent on God alone, not on Abraham, not on anybody else, but on God alone, or else it's not a promise. Faith is null and the promise is void. That's what Paul is saying. There's an antithesis between faith on the one hand and the law on the other when it comes to the fulfillment of God's promises. It, they, they, they don't go together. It's one or 
the other. It's either faith, which means that there's nothing that we do, there's nothing that we can do. We simply passively receive the gift of the gift giver, or it's on the basis of law, which means it's on the basis of works. There's, there's no middle ground. There's no mixture. It's either faith or the law. And if it is based on the law at all, then faith is null and the promise is void. Why is that? Paul goes on to de develop that argument a little bit more in verse 15. Here is why. It's basically in the nature of law itself. For the law, he says, brings wrath. But where there is no law, there is no transgression. In Galatians, Paul has a similar argument where he, he proves that justification is by grace alone, through faith alone. And in Galatians, like in chapter 3 and verse 17, he's going to point out that Abraham was justified some 430 years before the giving of the law. So in other words, in terms of history, the law had no role in Abraham's justification. That's not Paul's argument here in Romans. Paul's argument in Romans chapter 4 and verse 15, is on the, on the uh, basis of the nature of the law itself. The law brings wrath. Remember what we saw as Paul opened up Romans. Romans chapter 1 and verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. This is what the law does. The law pronounces a curse. The law threatens the wrath of God upon all violations of the law, against all transgressions of the law. The, the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Then remember what we saw in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. As it is written, so here Paul is drawing from the Old Testament itself. This is not just Paul saying it. He's simply reaffirming what God had already revealed None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Do you hear that? What that means is that in Romans chapter 1 and verse 18, there is no one who does not deserve the wrath of God. That's the conclusion. There's not a bunch of unrighteous people who 
deserve the wrath of God and then a separate category of righteous people who don't deserve the wrath of God because we're all in that same boat. There's none righteous. There's no one who does good. We're all unrighteous. Well, that's what the wrath of God is for. So the wrath of God is for all of us. That's what he goes on to say in verses 19 and 20 of Romans chapter 3. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God, or the whole world may become guilty before God, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. That's why Paul says, for the law brings wrath. It does. It does. The law cannot justify. It cannot bring salvation. And it's not because there's a defect in the law itself. The, the law is holy, righteous, and good. The problem is with us. The law is holy, righteous, and good. We're unholy, unrighteous, and ungood. And so for sinners like us, the law brings wrath. That's all it can bring. And guess who's included in that? Abraham. That's Paul's point. Remember he said earlier, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight including Abraham. Abraham by himself. Abraham in and of himself. Abraham, as God called him out from Ur of the Chaldees, that Abraham was not righteous. He was not good. He was under the wrath of God. And yet, Abraham believed God and he accounted it to him for righteousness. So that's what Paul is stressing here in verse 15. And he goes on to say, for where there is no law, there is no transgression. And what he means by that is that there is no law and therefore no transgression that is in the way of God's promise to Abraham coming to pass. God's promise to Abraham was going to come to pass because God said, I will, I will, I will. There's no possibility of failure. In the engineering world, there's such a thing as single point failure. So on the base, for example... There are weapon systems that are designed and we do not want them to go off at the wrong time or under the wrong conditions. And so people do a fault tree analysis to, to figure out every single possibility of something that could go wrong so that that bomb and, or missile or munition is going to go off at the wrong time and under the, under the wrong conditions and maybe sink a U.S. ship. We don't want that to happen. 
And if you put yourself in that position and you're looking at this design and the design shows there's this one component, a widget. And if that widget works, great. And if that widget fails, guess what? The thing blows up. So success or failure is dependent on that widget. So either you get a really super good widget that will never, ever, ever fail at the wrong time when you don't expect it, or you change your design so you get that widget out of that line so that the bad thing happening is not dependent on the widget. That's what Paul is saying in Romans 4 and verse 15. Where there is no law, there is no transgression. There was no single point failure that was in the way of God fulfilling his promise to Abraham. There was nothing that Abraham was going to do or not do that would cause a failure in God's promise coming to pass. There was nothing that the Jews, centuries later, could have done that would cause, that would cause a failure in God's fulfilling his promise. That's what Paul is saying. No single point failure, no possibility of failure. So he wraps up this part of the argument in verse 16. That is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace. Whose grace? The grace of God. The promise rests on the grace of God, which means it rests on God and God alone. That's why the next phrase is there. The promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. God's promise is guaranteed. That's the nature of God's promise. I will, I will, I will. It's guaranteed to take place. No possibility of failure. Therefore, the promise had to depend on God and God alone and not sinners. It had to be based on God's grace. And then he says at the end of verse 16 that this applies to all believers no matter who they are. So he says, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. And I would just remind you of Galatians 3.29, where the same apostle wrote, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, Abraham is your father. You are a child, a descendant. You are part of that number of the offspring of Abraham. So, the promise realized through faith, not law. 
Next, Paul goes on to tell us about the strength of Abraham's faith. The strength of Abraham's faith. Notice what he says in verse 17. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. Where's that written? Genesis 17, verses 4 and 5. And there we read, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. So, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. This is the nature of God. The God of the Bible, the God who made promises to Abraham, this is the God who is described in those terms. He gives life to the dead. And we saw that in the people whom Jesus raised from the dead. We see that in Jesus himself being raised from the dead. And we see that at the end of time, when Jesus comes again, when all believers will be raised from the dead. 1 Corinthians 15. God does not depend on anyone or anything. He gives life to the dead. This is who God is. And he calls into existence the things that do not exist. God demonstrated that in Genesis chapter 1. He said, let there be light. And there was light. And over and over again, he said, let there be, and there was. He calls into existence things that do not exist. God is the self-existent one. He has existence in and of himself. When he created all things in the beginning, nothing else existed except for God. But he caused the heavens and the earth, the seas and all things that are in them, to come into existence. This is what the God of the Bible does. And this is the one that Abraham had faith in. And remember that God made this promise. The promise in uh, Genesis 17, verses 4 through 5, uh, you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. God made that promise to Abraham while both Abraham and Sarah were old and childless. But nothing can stop God from keeping his promises. This is who God is. God has the wherewithal to accomplish all his purposes. There's no one or no thing that can stop or frustrate God from fulfilling his word. But then Paul's focus turns to Abraham himself as a man of faith 
to highlight the strength of his faith. So we were in verse 17. And there Paul was talking about God. He's the God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Now in verse 18, Paul talks about Abraham. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. And remember that um, that was the seed promise that God had made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 5. And in Genesis 15 and verse 6, that's the promise that Abraham believed and God accounted it to him for righteousness. So in hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which, is, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of, of Sarah's womb. When Abraham believed God, there was no other reason for Abraham to believe God except God's word. Accept God's word. If, if we heard the voice of God today say, residents of Ridgecrest, today the temperature is going to break 100 degrees. Nobody would say, whoa. I mean, that's, that's what we expect. But when God promised Abraham that he would be the father of many nations, there was no reason for Abraham to believe that except for the word of God. That is what faith is. Faith in the Bible is not just a rosy outlook on life. It's not just optimism. It's not just that kind of thing. Faith in the Bible is specifically faith in the word of God. Trust in the word of God as the basis of our hope. Which is why the writer of the book of Hebrews wrote in Hebrews 11 and verse 1, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Back to Romans chapter 4, verse 20. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. That's what's being described here. Abraham's faith growing strong. He already had faith back in Genesis chapter 15. This is later in chapter 17. And by the way, in Genesis chapter 22 that Nate wrote, uh, read for us earlier with uh, the, the whole test of Abraham offering up Isaac as a sacrifice, did you catch that at the beginning of that narrative, 
in Genesis chapter 22, it said that God tested Abraham. It was a test. Not just to see whether or not Abraham had faith, but it was a test, it was a trial by which Abraham's faith would grow. That's what Paul is writing about here. He's focusing in on the strength of Abraham's faith so that we would see what faith is and why it's important. And we can have the same kind of faith and we can grow in our faith and have strong faith like Abraham did. So then verse 21. Abraham was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. What a great definition of faith. If you have faith in the gospel, this is what it means. You are fully convinced that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, it was for your sins. When Jesus Christ rose from the dead, it was for your justification. And because of what Jesus Christ did, God has accepted you in the beloved. And therefore, all of God's promises are your promises, part of your life, part of your present, part of your future. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are fully convinced that God saves you in Christ, that he is able to keep all of his promises to you in Christ. And then in verse 22, Paul says, that is why Abraham's faith was counted to him as righteousness. A reference again to Genesis 15 and verse 6. So that's the bottom line, verse 22. This is the point of the argumentation. This is why uh, what we saw in Genesis 15 and verse 6 is true. It's not Paul twisting it and putting a, a, a weird, unique construct on the word of God. This is what the word of God means, implies, and requires as it sits on the page in the pages of the Old Testament. It must be this way, that salvation and therefore the, the promise of God to be a blessing to the nations through Abraham and his seed comes by way of faith on account of God's grace. Has to be, Paul says. So that brings us to Paul's conclusion. What does this promise, what does God's promise to Abraham have to do with us? You've already heard it alluded to, but here it is in black and white. Verse 23, but the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake, but also, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. Raise your hand if you were here last Sunday. Do you remember we talked about 
that word counted? We, we saw it in um, verses 1 through 12. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8 times in verses 1 through 12. And then 9, 10, 11 in verses 23 and 24. So 11 times Paul uses this word counted in Romans chapter 4. It's a very important word. And I refresh your memory from last Sunday. The English word counted is, uh, comes from the Greek word logizomai. Logizomai. That's the word that Paul wrote. And logizomai, counted, is an accounting term. And it's from the world of debits and credits. And so what Paul is saying is that when Abraham's faith was counted to him as righteousness, that was not written just for Abraham. It was written for us as well. In other words, that our faith will be counted to us for righteousness. Because we believe in God, the same God of Abraham, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. You following? Got that? That's what happens to us. It's not that God makes us righteous, and that's why he accepts us. That's why he justifies us. No, he counts us as righteous. There's a debit to Jesus' account. He takes the blame for our sin. He absorbs the curse that our sin deserves. Jesus gets the debit. We get the credit. The righteousness of God. That is what Paul's language means. It can't mean anything else. But then that raises the question, why is it that when we have faith in Jesus, God counts it to us for righteousness? That's what he explains in verse 25. And this is the heart of the gospel. Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses. We know that it was by the hands of sinful men that Jesus was delivered up. That's true. Judas Iscariot was involved. The Jewish leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees were involved. Pontius Pilate was involved. There was a whole cast of characters who had a hand in delivering up Jesus to the cross. But the message of the Bible is that behind all of that and underneath all of that, there was God himself who was delivering up his own son. Jesus was delivered up by God for our trespasses. In other words, as our substitute. He's our sacrificial lamb. He's our scapegoat. 
That's why we read in Isaiah chapter 53, verses 5 and 6, that the Messiah was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's what it means he was delivered up for our trespasses. Our trespasses, our iniquities, our sins, our transgressions laid on Jesus. Did you hear that in the story of Abraham and Isaac in Genesis chapter 22? We, we, we heard the reasoning of Abraham's faith as he's taking the knife and getting ready to thrust it through the heart of his own son, his only son, Isaac. And by the way, it was through that son by name that God promised to make Abraham the father of many nations. God specifically said a number of times, it's going to come through Isaac. It's going to come through Isaac, your son. And then here he is in Genesis chapter 22. Hey, Abraham, take Isaac and sacrifice him. We were told in Genesis 22 and verse 8 that Abraham said to Isaac, God will provide for himself the lamb. And that's what delivered Isaac in Genesis chapter 22. But brothers and sisters and friends, that's what delivers us. God provides his own sacrifice in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. He was delivered up for our trespasses. That's why it works. That's why it works. That he takes the blame for our sins and we get the credit for his righteousness. Because God has provided his own sacrifice. And then it doesn't stop. Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Paul has been explaining justification to us. Justification, once again, is a legal term by which somebody is pronounced or declared legally righteous. Justification is not the same thing as just forgiven or even innocent. It's more than that. It's a pronouncement of righteous. When you are justified, when anyone is justified, when Abraham was justified, it was a pronouncement of righteous. And that's important because God does not require just a blank slate as far as our righteousness is, our righteousness is concerned. It's not enough for us to be forgiven. It's not enough, not enough for us just to be a blank slate as far as righteousness is concerned. We must be positively righteous. And as we've seen in Romans chapter 3, we can't do that. We are not that. We need the very righteousness of God, which God grants as a gift through faith in his Son, 
because not only was Jesus delivered up for our trespasses, he was raised for our justification. So what that means to us is that when God raised Jesus from the dead, Jesus had paid it all. There was no more wrath that is coming our way as believers. There's no more condemnation that we have to fear. Paul is going to say that in Romans chapter 8. There's no more punishment. You, you do not have to go to purgatory and suffer for a, a million years before you can go to heaven. By the way, that's torturous, but that won't work. But none of that is true. Jesus has done it all. He's paid the price. He has ransomed us with the purchase price of his own blood. And God has put his stamp of approval on that price that was paid by raising Jesus from the dead. That's the receipt. There's nothing else to add. In my lifetime, I've bought and sold several houses. And it never ceases to amaze me, by the way, how, how many people have their hands out for the process of buying and selling houses. But I've bought and sold many houses, and when I sell a house, I end up getting in the mail at some point this, uh, this uh, deed of conveyance or something like that. And, and it, it's, so, it's really super legal. There's all kinds of words. And what it basically means is this house had this amount of money owed on it. It was paid in full. And now Lynn and Denise Whitcomb own that house free and clear. And there's this stamp, shaking. And there it is. That's my receipt for the house. That's the resurrection for us as believers. It's done. It's finished. It's paid for. Because Jesus was raised for our justification. Brothers and sisters, this is an amazing truth. This is not just complex reasoning on the part of the Apostle Paul. This is gospel truth that we need to embrace and we need to understand. And the more we embrace it and the more we understand it, the stronger our faith will be. And then our sight will be lifted above the humdrum of this world and all of the bad news in this world and all of the things that could make us uh, anxious and down and depressed because we know that God will keep all of his promises to us. We know, for example, that all things will work together for our good. We know that he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? That's a great promise, brothers and sisters. And that's your possession because Jesus was delivered up for your transgressions and raised again for your 
justification. If you're not a believer, this is good news for you. This is better news than if I said I've got the ultimate actual cure for the coronavirus. It's, it's better news than if I said, you know what? There's a new stimulus. It's a hundred trillion dollars and it's all going to you in your account, no one else. This is better news than that because this has to do with the salvation of your never dying soul and where you're going to spend eternity. It is the best news imaginable based on the best promise conceivable paid for by the best Savior that anyone could ever comprehend. Jesus Christ the righteous. What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Come to Jesus Christ today and be saved.